Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Lawrence R. Simon, who is Professor of International Development at Brandeis University, and he directs its Center for International Development and the Sustainable Development Graduate Programs. Uh, Lawrence, welcome to Berkeley. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. Where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in New York, in Brooklyn. And uh, looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? You know, actually, as I guess as I've grown older, I've thought a lot about that, uh, particularly because my father was born in the year 1903 on Hester Street, hmm. which was really the center of the Jewish ghetto in those years of immigrants who had just, just arrived, of course, with a major wave of immigration. And the poverty that he grew up in, which I studied many years later as I look back on his life, um, was profound. And I think looking at that poverty that he grew up in gave me a greater understanding and sensitivity perhaps to some of the work that I did later on uh, after I began my, my career. So, you know, in, in, in those years of uh, the early 1900s, the Lower East Side had a child mortality rate of about 150 per thousand live births. That's the mm. highest that I think we've ever seen it in developing countries, even in conflict situations. So trying to mine some of my father's experience was very meaningful to me. Was, was there a conversation about what he had gone through a, a lot of the time? Or? Not at all, and I think it was fairly typical of his generation that there was really no nostalgia. And uh, to him, his uh, upbringing, uh, while he came from a very wonderful family, the neighborhood was not something he ever really referred to. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, I became very interested in novels and memoirs of his generation. He was not a person to write such a thing, but um, and it was very typical of his family, an, an old-world, stern father who would look at his kid who wants to go to school with the Irish and the Italians in public school rather than the Jewish school and throws his hands up in the air and says, how did I get this American kid? But that was the beginning, to me, a lesson within my own family, I think, of, um, of kind of a cosmopolitanism, which is the best of America, this cauldron that we grow up in here. To, to what extent was that a, a product also of your Jewish identity? I'm not sure because I think um, many other ethnic groups have gone through a similar transition, of course, when they, when, 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 when they arrive here. But my, um, my father, uh, who was the firstborn in the states of his seven his, his siblings, uh, he had an older, older sister who came here as an infant, but he was the firstborn of the family here, um, really, I think, represented a kind of tradition back in Russia of a kind of a secular messianic view of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not come from, his father was religious, but he somehow inculcated the values of a more secular Judaism, but one that really felt very deeply about issues of social justice. I don't think this is unique to Jews, but it is certainly very deeply ingrained, I think, in the values of Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your experience in the public schools, 
How did that shape you? It was very important to me because um, I had the uh, privilege of growing up in a community that was very diverse. Mm -hmm. So sitting next to people of all colors and religions uh, was, uh, was quite important, uh, I, I think. Uh, and then where did you do your undergraduate and then graduate work? And what was your graduate work in? My undergraduate <clears throat> work was at uh, Queens College at the City University of New York, um, which was a great place, and certainly in the years that I was there, and I studied in philosophy. Philosophy to me represented a discipline that would not limit me. <laughs> I felt very deeply that I could study ethics as well as aesthetics and Queens College faculty were very strong in American pragmatism, and all of that very much appealed to me. Then I went on to do graduate work at the New School for Social Research in, in, in New York. But those were the years of the really the height of the Vietnam War. And my draft board uh, very much was eager to send me off to, uh, to, to fight. And like many of my generation, I had this profound conflict between... Um, going to fight in a war that I absolutely did not believe in, felt it was the wrong direction for our, for our country, um, or somehow finding a way to, uh, to, to, to stay, stay away from the war. And I did so by actually teaching in the South Bronx for uh, mm -hmm. the better part of a year until I turned 26 and um, left the new school, actually, because I became involved in, um, in international development work by first teaching at Fordham University and the Lincoln Center campus and being exposed to so many missionaries, both Latin American missionaries and Americans going back and forth. Uh, before we talk about uh, uh, your, your path here, let's stop here a second. What, what did you get from teaching in the public schools? I first, I think a headache. <laughs> you know, it, 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 if you ever needed proof that uh, the schools cannot do, cannot transform things alone, it, it was my experience there. Mm. This was elementary school, and the kids were bringing uh, really a good deal of violence into the school. The neighborhood was uh, chaotic. Uh, families were had many, at least, had very much disintegrated. So the school tried, but um, in the years that I was there, they really were verging toward almost a draconian kind of school atmosphere that um, even the principal, when I was there, was, uh, was beating kids with a ruler, uh, saying that uh, he was uh, African-American himself, but feeling that he was the model for them and uh, that they needed this kind of discipline. Uh, but on to graduate school... And, and uh, yeah. where you became a geographer, and where did you do the, the rest of your graduate work? Well, I came back to school, actually, after years of work in development, uh, working uh, with Oxfam in those years, and uh, came back to uh, study uh, geography at the uh, School of Geography at Clark University. Mm -hmm. And what did you do your dissertation on? My dissertation was a comparison of land reform movements mm -hmm. uh, in Central America and Zimbabwe, uh, specifically El Salvador, where I had done a good deal of uh, field work and, and Zimbabwe, which was uh, very much looking uh, good in those years, of course, with Mr. Mugabe having just come to power. Mm -hmm. uh, uh before we talk about your really distinguished career in, in development as a practitioner, as a leader of NGOs, as a researcher, uh, I would like to ask you 
to sort of, A, define the, the role that you've filled, but then also give us a sense of the skills that are involved in this very uh, difficult set of tasks uh, that you've undertaken in working on development, aid, uh, humanitarianism, and so on. Right. Well, you know, um, I've seen in my the span of my career just a transformation of the field of international development Almost all of the major relief or development organizations today, Catholic Relief Services and Church World Service and and World Vision and all, really began as relief organizations. Some of them still have that in in their name. And relief uh, was seen as an emergency response to famine, uh, to to drought, and and, and, and so forth. But they quickly, like the Oxfams itself, which originally was the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief in 1942, first operation behind Nazi lines in Greece with Winston Churchill's permission for Oxfam to go in there, um, they quickly began to recognize that we needed to begin work um, on the problems that produced famine, that produced the disenfranchisement of so many people that ended up with their entitlements eroding and requiring international assistance. And that's um, a transformation that uh, two development organizations that I think is a very healthy one. Mm-hmm. But but now, it, it, obviously, more and more young people, especially the idealistic ones, want to pursue this this kind of path. And I'm I'm uh, as I look at your story uh, and and some of your writings, I, I get the sense that that uh, you you really feel that through training and experience, you really have to understand the complexity of the places that you might go to or be part of an organization that's helping. Uh, Absolutely. I often say that in development, context is really everything. There are lessons to be learned from other countries' experience, definitely. But uh, if we don't know the local context, the local institutions and traditions, uh, traditions, um, for instance, um, I've done a lot of work on land tenure and land tenure reform. And very often, in the name of modernization, states sweep away the land tenure systems that have really worked well under, say, tribal elders in Africa. And I don't want to romanticize that, but these are systems that actually have served the needs of their communities for many, many years, for hundreds of years, indeed. So I think um, we shouldn't just sweep things away. We need to understand deeply the cultural roots of civilization in, in, in all the places that we, that, that we work. That they, our aim is not to just make little Americas of, uh, of, um, of sub-Saharan Africa. You, you, it would seem also that when one actually uh, goes to these places, uh, and, and, and some advice you gave yesterday in your lecture to students, it was uh, don't be bothered by having dirt under your <laughs> fingernails, or you were suggesting that those kinds of people should be employed. And I, I believe you quoted Larry Brilliant uh, telling, tell, tell us that quote, because you, you really have to be, I guess, courageous and, and willing to get your hands dirty if you're going to go to rural provinces and work on aid? 
I, I, I think so. I mean, the great disadvantage that any of us have, being Americans or Europeans or Japanese or um, Australians working in aid, is that um, we are clearly seen as outsiders. And even though we may be welcomed very warmly, we really do not have the experience of having grown up in, in the deep poverty and, uh, and despair in some cases. That, um, that is the life experience of the people that we, we're going to serve. So, yeah, you know, I've been doing some advising of um, uh, Silicon Valley uh, um, philanthropies. And, um, one, yes, you're right. I mean, one of the bits of advice I give is, please, let's hire people who have dirt under their fingernails. That is, people who, for whom it's not just an academic exercise or sitting at the, in Washington at major international finance organizations that can do some good work, but, but really may not be in as close touch again with the grassroots. So, Larry Brilliant, the story that you, you Who mentioned. Who is now the uh, head of Google.org. He's now yeah. the head of the Google.org, which includes the Google Foundation. And uh, Larry used to be on a board of directors that I, I was the president of uh, the American Jewish World Service and asked Larry to serve on the board. And after a few years, there was a major debate about some of our work that we wanted to do in, uh, in Eritrea, and particularly with refugee, Eritrean refugees. And, uh, and, and Larry, I think, at one point threw his hands up and said, look, if you've never been to a refugee camp, you shouldn't be making policy. No, he said, actually, he went further. He says, actually, if you've never had diarrhea in a refugee camp, let's not sit here trying to make policy for refugees. Meaning that boards of directors of many international NGOs are well-meaning, well-intended people, many of whom have never really, again, experienced the life of despair. And it's that level of, of understanding, I think, that is necessary on boards and for us as practitioners to try to understand why the aid relationships, these so-called partnerships that we try to structure, don't always work out well. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I have the sense that, that you believe that one really has to examine one's own philosophical roots uh, and, and really uh, that theory uh, and the theory of practitioners is, is very important for, for guidance. Now, in, in your time, you've, you've uh, uh, worked with some extraordinary individuals who, who could offer that uh, Paulo Ferrer in, in uh, Latin America, and then also uh, with uh, A.T. Ariratna. Ariratna. Talk a little about that, what, what your relationship with, was with each of these individuals and, and, and what they helped you see. I was um, really privileged when I was teaching at Fordham University. Um, I was asked, and I was a very young, young fellow in, the, in those, those days, I was asked to host the visit of uh, an archbishop from Recife, Brazil, Helda Camara. And uh, perhaps because I was impressionable, particularly then, or, or maybe because of the real holiness of this gentleman, that I was tremendously, deeply influenced by his life's work. And he told me a story, and he introduced me subsequently to Paolo Freire, but he told me a story about when he was first appointed bishop of Recife. 
He went out, and he was already a person who saw the poverty of Brazil through a very politicized lens, but he had never worked in the Northeast. He went there, and he tried to go out to meet meet the parishioners all over the Northeast. And he knew that infant and child mortality was among the highest in the world, and he told me that he asked the people one simple question at every village. He says, why is it that so many of your children die? And Dom Helder heard, he told me, the same answer invariably everywhere he went. But, Monsignor, this is the way God made the world. And the bishop, the archbishop, uh, told me that he saw the rest of his life's work unfold before him to try to break people out of that internalization of oppression that sense of fatalism, of deterministic universe that they existed in, that there was no sense of personal agency, no critical consciousness, as Paolo Freire would call it later, to, tr- to understand the objective causes of their poverty. And Paolo Freire came up through the northeast of Brazil. He was born there. He was raised there. He became very much involved, involved in Catholic action movements. And um, and I, he also had a great influence on on me as his work began to gain uh, a great prestige, uh, not only in Latin America but throughout throughout the world. And and what about the Asian influences? I mean, what yes. were you as you as you learned from these people who were more directly exposed to to the worlds that, that we're talking about changing? Uh, uh, were you uh, were you seeing things that you actually hadn't thought of, even though you had grown up on, in the east side of New York? I think the major lesson for me was that development cannot succeed without the kind without indigenous leadership. That we cannot lead people to development. We can provide science and competence and training in some respects for more technical things but that the real issues of poverty are about politics and about the lack of political will to solve problems uh, that are so deeply entrenched in many societies around the world. So whether it is Dom Hilda Kamra or Dr. Aryaratna in Sri Lanka, who has led for all these years now uh, one of the largest non-governmental organizations in Asia called the Savrodia Movement, these are the kinds of leaders, I think, uh, whether they are charismatic leaders or building of solid NGOs like, uh, like Abed, and who heads, founded and heads the Bangladesh World Advancement Committee, or Eunice and Grameen. These are the people, I think, who have the vision, the understanding of their local cultures, and the changes that need to occur within culture in order to uh, bring people into, uh, into the modern world and into the eradication of poverty. How, uh, I know that, that one of your first uh, uh, positions in this work, uh, if not the first, was as head of uh, Oxfam uh, USA and then uh, later uh, head of uh, global research for Oxfam. Yes, at Oxfam I, I, I was at uh, first the, um, uh, I worked, uh, helped to open up the, uh, the Central America projects and also um, began our educational work here in the United States, which led to our, to the recognition that we wanted as an organization to try to influence United States 
policy vis-a-vis developing nations because of the profound impact that the U.S., of course, had and still has uh, on the world of development. And and as you did that work, especially, especially in Central America, yes. you, you really came uh, to a realization, as I understand it, of the structural problems Absolutely. within these countries, for example, land reform, yes. that, that uh, really uh, had to be addressed. Latin America is still very much characterized uh, uh, by its, uh, its landlessness, that is, among the poor. Overwhelmingly, uh, I mean, it's easier to see an apartheid society like South Africa was or southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe was, because the divide between white and black was, was, was obvious to, to everybody who, who would look at it, and the injustice of that situation was quite apparent to, I think, the world community. But what we see in Latin America... We see in the island of Negros in the Philippines, we see in rural Pakistan today, is really a feudal structure still, where people who are poor today were farmers. They consider themselves in Latin America still campesinos, which means small farmer, but they have no land or they don't have secure access on their land. And in the absence of alternative opportunities for household income, their families are hungry, perpetually hungry. So you have a tremendously skewed ownership of land in, in many of these societies, which is, which is gr- grossly immoral, I think, and, 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 and unjust. Yesterday in your lecture, you said something interesting. You said that uh, a key indicator of the way that we should look at these places was the survival of the child. Survival of children, indeed. I think that um, the world of development is very complex, and sometimes I think we get lost in it. There's so much to do. I think that a lot of our aid, whether it's from international NGOs, particularly from the United States uh, government, I would hope, and uh, hope in this new administration, would, would focus on people who are one step above famine. That is, people who are so poor and so disenfranchised that they cannot guarantee the survival of their own children against not just famine, but, but against diseases that, were, that we know how to cure, that are entirely preventable. I think that's the major contribution we have to make for a number of reasons. First of all, it addresses the real uh, half the world's population that continue to live on the equivalent of $2 a day. As I like to remind people that the statistic is $2 a day as if they lived in the United States, not not $2 a day in Bangladesh, the buying power of $2 a day here. That's pretty poor. Mm -hmm. So I think though that's really the population that we, we need to focus on. The other reason is that um, child survival, we have realized, is the key or certainly one of the major keys to uh, stabilization of population. There's no society on earth that I know of that has been able to reduce its fertility rates the way the industrialized nations have without first guaranteeing child survival. That is, I think, still paramount. Uh, in, in your work at uh, Oxfam, uh, you, you, it's very clear that it was a real learning curve for you. You were seeing things that you hadn't realized. You, 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 uh, uh, and, and one of your insights over time was the, the idealism and the well-intentioned motivation of, for example, in the context of a famine, of providing immediate aid had unintended consequences that that led you to actually uh, question 
the that initial uh, action from those very uh, idealistic purposes? Well, I think we see in every um, every major disaster. We need only look back a few years now to these great the terrible tsunami that hit that hit uh, Indonesia and. Three hours later, hit Sri Lanka, and tens of thousands of people perished, and even hit the coast of Africa. To realize that the um, that disaster response or emergency response relief is still done in a very chaotic manner. We've learned a lot as professional organizations, but in the midst of a major catastrophe like that, every organization tries to arrive there, comes with its own presumptions about what the needs are. So, to give you, I think, a, a stunning example. Sri Lanka, after a few days, began to turn away flights of surgeons and medical personnel from other countries. And Israel had a plane load of, of physicians coming in, turned away, and immediately the press began to suspect that, ah, this, has, this is politics interfering with, uh, with the relief work. In fact, it's because Sri Lanka has been in the foreground for many decades of, of, a, of public health work. The tsunami didn't affect any of the hospitals. The entire medical establishment, public health establishment in Sri Lanka was intact. And they didn't need the assistance, and the airport was completely clogged with unnecessary supplies, thousands of aid workers flooding in that weren't entirely needed, or in some cases not needed at all. So I think chaos really reigns in these uh, in these uh, relief operations, and and uh, and and the chaos in a way is, uh, I think you're suggesting on 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 the the, the West or the 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 benefactor side in the sense yeah. that our idealism is not. Uh, giving us the wherewithal to look at what the actual situation is. You talk uh, in, in one of uh, your articles about the Guatemala earthquake, the, the immediate sending of food, and, and in a, that, that aid was screwing up uh, a nascent market. Tell us about that, because that's really quite extraordinary. That was actually one of the great lessons of that era. Uh, this was in the aftermath of a major earthquake in Guatemala, late 1970s. And um, the assumptions, of course, on the aid establishment in the United States and other countries, too, was that in the, in the aftermath of a major disaster of any kind, you bring in food. We knew being on the ground in Guatemala in those days with Oxfam America and Oxfam Great Britain and others that earthquakes don't no normally destroy food stocks. Uh, they may shake things up, but the field crops usually survive unless a dam bursts and, and floods a valley or something, which didn't happen. And the effect of bringing in massive quantities of American food aid actually knocked the bottom out of the market for all of the small farmers in the highlands particularly who would, whose crops were just coming to market. So it depressed prices. So, it, so it, uh, it actually worked against relief because people people's livelihoods were, were, were damaged, not by the earthquake itself, but by the relief program. And we at Oxfam actually had to institute a price stabilization. We began to soak up the excess uh, commodities on the market, the locally produced food, until such time that we could convince the United States to please suspend your food aid programs and let the markets recover. Now, in, in your work at Oxfam, you, you were involved and wrote some of the first audits 
where you were actually trying to say, well, this is what's going on, you know, this was what our programs were, uh, and and let's really evaluate them. And and in the course of doing, and and the purpose here, as I understand it, was for public education, for self-analysis within the organization, but but you discovered something else, uh, and that was the the perspective that, that that American power often had different goals and and I guess this was quite a learning experience for you and and it's it's kind of very important so it's not just the idealism which can go uh, awry as you've already suggested but also that uh, powerful interests may have different agendas including the American state yeah If I were making any recommendations to the new Obama administration, it would be, uh, and I think I speak on behalf of many international development organizations here too, to try to buffer the American aid establishment, our United States Agency for for International Development and other such groups that provide aid uh, in the name of America, to try to buffer it from the State Department particularly from national security interests. Not that the national security interests aren't often very legitimate and important objectives of United States foreign policy, but they may in fact run counter to the objectives that I tried to lay out a few moments ago of working with the poorest of the poor, of helping people to overcome some of the structural uh, injustices within, within their society. And my experience is that whenever we are working in countries where the U.S. sees a national security threat, the United States Agency for International Development becomes an, a handmaiden of national security interests and really distorts our aid objectives. And that's not, and, and I think it works against the interests of the poor. And in, in the, during the period that we're talking about, it was really anti-communism. Absolutely. And alliances with uh, military and feudal interests, Absolutely. basically. Uh, and I, I guess you were d- really discovering that even within Oxfam, the the, the national, the, the worldwide organization, that there was a resistance to going public with regard to some of what you were seeing until they came to realize that Oxfam workers in Central America were actually being killed by the military. So you can't run away from power. You you really you really can't. But it is complex because when we were about to release one of our audits on uh, on the uh, violence, rural violence in Guatemala. This was at a time that the United States was considering reinstatement of military aid to then a military dictatorship in Guatemala, ostensibly for um, to stop a communist revolution, but um, but it was not seeing the reality on the ground of what was fueling a you know the the historic rebellions of Central America at all. We sent our draft, of course, to the other Oxfams for review because we share it a name, and that's very important that we not jeopardize anybody who's working in the field under the name of Oxfam. And the head of Oxfam Great Britain did call and ask us to, to not to release the report because he felt that uh, not so much because Brits working there or Americans working there might be endangered, because the hundreds of nationals, Guatemalans, that were working on Oxfam projects might be endangered if the name Oxfam became very politicized in the minds of the death squads and the military dictatorship. We held off on that. And then about six months later, 
Brian Walker, the head of Oxfam Great Britain, called up again and said, release your report and please help us organize a lobbying campaign in Washington against U.S. policy in, in, in Guatemala now because they could document, they said, and we're about to release this report, over 400 deaths of Oxfam workers. Now, not again, not the Americans like myself, but, uh, but Guatemalans who were terracing hillsides, working on primary health care, who were being targeted by death squads because they saw development, any kind of community development as, in their eyes, the vanguard of, of, of a revolution. So it's a complex equation also. There are organizations that work in relief like Medicine Sans Frontier, the Doctors Without Borders, who put up with no, they don't put up with grief. They will say to a government that if you're not permitting us to get our work done, they will pick up and, 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 and leave. And others re- recognize that if they're working in relief and even in development, there are times you want to keep a low profile and just try to get as much done as as, as, as humanly possible. In, in this early era, the the your work in Central America and then in Cambodia, the 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 boogeyman of national security was communism and the Soviet Absolutely. Union. Uh, and, and when you write about your work in Southeast Asia, it, uh, uh, aid programs were being running up against the wall of the anti-Vietnamese sentiment uh, uh, of the U.S. government. Well, we've moved past that era in a way, but now I think we've moved into an era where the the goal of U.S. foreign policy is uh, alleged to be democratization on the yes. one hand, but we see military power as the vehicle for implementing a yes. democratization. And, and yes. I guess in this recent period, our elites seem to have learned that you can't democratize unless you have security yes. and that democratization is much more complex. And at a certain point, we're going to be talking about development. But, but now we're in a situation where we're doing a lot of this through the military. Talk a little about that. Absolutely. Well over 20% of the United States economic assistance, our ODA, Overseas Development Assistance, now goes through the Department of Defense. I hope that's going to be reversed in the new administration. This question of democratization is is really a troubling one, but also within USAID, I think it's troubling. I interview a fair number of mission USAID mission directors as I work around the world, and I very rarely meet anybody can, who can explain to me what it actually means on the ground. What do they do? Sometimes they're working and developing a free press. Fine, that's a good thing to do, I think. Whether we can really do that is, I think, questionable. But most of, a lot of our aid goes now to the private sector because we believe in private sector solutions. Again, if private sector can emerge as it is in China, as it has stunningly in, in, in India and opened itself to, to the world, that's great. Investment's going to flow there. They don't need USAID's funds. They don't need my contributions as a private citizen to help private sectors, I think, emerge you know, around the world. I was very close to the governor of the Bank of Uganda, the Central Bank of Uganda, Governor Chikunyoko. And he once told me, he passed away a few years ago, but he once told me at a time when Uganda was being portrayed as uh, kind of the poster 
country, poster child, if you will, of, of uh, structural adjustment, of doing all the right things to open their economy na- globally, to allow in foreign investment, to uh, have a, uh, a, 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 an enabling environment for, for development. And he told me that, yes, he said, Larry, we're making a lot of progress. We, we are being praised, but I'm becoming very fearful, were his exact words to me, fearful, that it's proving easier to develop an elite economy linked globally than it is to incorporate the great masses, the great majority of, the, of, the, of Ugandans who are dirt poor into that elite economy. And those words have really rung true to me. It's not that um, India, with all of its tremendous assets and skills, cannot possibly address the structural inequalities within their country, but they have hundreds of millions of people who are living like in the 15th century and another and then half of their country that are really first world citizens today. That's the great challenge, I think, for them, to incorporate the masses of the poor, to break down their social isolation, even their psychological isolation, to be able to be prepared to enter the modern world. Now, in your work uh, uh, after Oxfam, you uh, were the first president and uh, creator yes. of uh, the American Jewish World Service. Yes. And I want you to tell us what that was. And, and, and it was during that period uh, that you were an innovator in the sense of working with Israeli scientists to create storage bin for post-conflict and and famine situations. Tell us about that. I'm very interested in the dynamic of what NGOs can do and and how you can reach out to to create something that sort of wouldn't happen. So it's a kind of leadership that actually is is respectful of your overall paradigm. Yes. Well, first I, I left Oxfam in late 1984 and founded the American Jewish World Service in my living room in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Spent about six months trying to convince the first uh, person to join the board. Eventually succeeded in getting wonderful people, the rabbinical leadership of the United States and, uh, and wonderful uh, people like Elie Wiesel and, 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 and others to, to join and to back this movement. And I saw it as an attempt to become kind of a Jewish Oxfam, if you will. That is a highly professional organization working on a, in a completely nonpartisan way with the poor of the world, and also use it as a vehicle for the American Jewish community, both the large numbers of not unaffiliated Jews, as well as synagogues and temples, Jewish temples all over the United States, to learn something more about development. We did a lot in Oxfam on development education with our own constituency. I wanted to be able to do that with, with, with the Jewish community. Our board, of course, was very encouraging of my involving Israeli institutions in, in that effort. Of course, a lot of what I found in Israel was very high-tech, incredibly creative solutions to their own problems, but not things that you could bring to a field without electricity and to the standard living of many African farmers or or, or others. But I did find a couple of wonderful researchers at the Volcani Center, the Agricultural Research Center in in Israel, Dr. Shlomo Navarro, who grew up in Turkey, and Jonathan Donahue, who was French but grew up during World War II in England, 
who had created the world's really first very successful airtight or hermetic storage of grains. And Israel was storing in large hermetic stores with no fumigation, absolutely zero chemicals, and storing indefinitely with zero losses. So I, I latched onto that and I said, wow. And I raised foundation money to be able to bring them. They traveled with me throughout the world. And I said, I want you to take a look at what the problems of storage are in international relief organizations where we often lost 40 to 50 or more percent of incoming commodities for, from rot and insects and, 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 and rodents uh, on the docks in Djibouti and other places that we overwhelmed immediately with the first supplies. And also take a look at the lives of small farmers and their post-harvest losses, their storage losses, and see whether we could adapt this, which they did very successfully. I think that was the proudest accomplishment, frankly. Uh, part, one of the things that I'm most proud of in my own career, and I think American Jewish World Service should be very proud of its accomplishment in that area. So it's interesting because uh, on the one hand, uh, the West creates technologies that they see, uh, that we see as a magical cure. Yes, Increased bandwidth. Every student right. in the poorest village will have a, a computer with an internet connection. But, uh, so that's one side. And again, it's all very well-intentioned. It's American sure. idealism and American sure. wealth. But, but on the other hand, you're suggesting that that uh, what your career has taught you is that you have to understand the culture, yes. the the situation, respect the leadership that's on the ground, and that in fact there are openings for innovation, Absolutely. but it might be something as mundane as a as a a, a storage facility for grain right. or a, a sanitation yeah. facility for Sarajevo. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, technical innovation certainly has its has an enormous uh, contribution to be made in, in, in development. We need to bring science and technology to the people. I'm delighted that Google and other great corporations are trying to bring uh, increased bandwidth to sub-Saharan Af Africa. That's all for the good. I'm happy that Google went into China. It was somewhat controversial, not the foundation, but the corporation itself, because they, of course, had to agree to certain to permit the Chinese government uh, to, to, to censor uh, the, the web. We saw some of that during the Olympic Games with the press uh, complaining about that. But I think it is for the good, because every new access to the world to the extraordinary information that you and I ha have at our fingertips today, I think increases this sense that we are all, in fact, in, in one global society today. So innovation is sometimes difficult to bring to, particularly in very poor areas where people are risk-adverse, you know, we have tickets in our back pocket to go home if we get sick. If the, if, if the innovation fails, we don't suffer the consequences as the farmer's children might. But I think that innovation is, is certainly an important component of, uh, of, of development. Uh, your your uh, work has touched on the problem of religion. I mean, some yes. in, in Latin America, it was the, the liberation theology right. that, that really uh, uh, exposed the, the conditions of the, of the people on the yes. one hand. Uh, uh, on the other hand, in some of these places, yeah. religion, in a way, can be uh, 
a helpmate, or it can be an adversary in, in, in lifting up the poor. Uh, talk about that. And, and again, I, I should mention that we see that in, in the face of certain uh, natural disasters that it's often the religious groups in the, in the West that are best mobilized to, to actually provide it. Share with us your reflections on the pluses and minuses of of religion as as we address issues of world poverty. Remembering that I began my my earliest experience in Latin America and with um, missionaries, not only from America, but Latin American missionaries, Spanish missionaries. And these were people who impressed me. And here I was a young Jewish guy coming into Latin America uh, without much of an appreciation of the role of the Catholic Church, maybe knowing historically that the Church had come in with the conquistadors and had for centuries really were very close to the oligarchies that were repressing and disenfranchising so many uh, of their citizens. But I experienced a Latin America church in the aftermath of the Medellin Conference of Bishops that chose what they called the option for the poor, that said that we have to break from this alignment that we have historically had with the very wealthy in Latin America. We needed now to address the fundamental problems of injustice that is fueling the, 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 the famines, the, the, the perpetual hunger, the deep and deepening poverty that, we, uh, that, they, that they saw in all of their countries of, of, of Latin America. So I was really uh, privileged to be part of that in, as an observer, but be part of that to begin to appreciate what it meant for thousands of base Christian communities to pop up all over Latin America with lay leaders studying the social gospel earmarking certain pages for for future reflection. When Jesus talked about, I mean, the passage such as when Jesus turns to his disciples and says um, that that I will divide you on my left and my right, and he turns to one side and he says, where, when I was hungry, you did not feed me, and when I was thirsty, you did not give me drink, and when I was in prison, you did not visit me. And they say, but Lord, when were you hungry and we didn't feed you? When were you thirsty, etc.? And he says, insofar as you have not done this unto the least of these, my brethren, that is the child, the, the starving child, ye have not done this unto me. That's a powerful lesson for the people of Latin America about, about justice. And these are people who, throughout Latin America, like the people that Paulo Freire began working with in the northeast of Brazil, who lived in a psychological isolation, lived in an almost semi-feudal relationship to power structures within their own society. And for them to begin to reflect on, on the importance of the Bible to tell them, to teach them lessons about justice in society about interpersonal relationships that, that the rich need to have to get beyond their own concepts of power and justice and uh, power and generosity to get to issues of realignment of society to give all citizens of the world a, a decent chance at a life. This was a very powerful lesson for me. Now, what, the, the, what is, you quoted a bishop. Tell us that quote that you used yesterday about the bishop who said, I, I gave food to that the was, poor. Yeah. That was Helda Kammer again of, the, yeah. of, of Recife in Brazil, who uh, during the days of military repression in, in, in Brazil, used to say that when I feed the hungry, they call me a saint. But when I ask why are they hungry, they call me a communist. 
Now, in some respects, that era is gone, we know, of course. But still, the structures of, of, of society are still largely in place. Today, the change, of course, is that in Brazil, we have a very large and powerful landless workers' movement. And we have a president in Brazil, Lula, who is very sympathetic, who came out of that very same kind of social movement, who understands the life of the people. So we have seen, in some respects, a sea change in many Latin American countries to a government that wants to, wants to create an enabling environment for development. But still, it's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to change those structures. I think it's difficult in the United States also. We're in the midst of a, of an, of a massive economic crisis. What, are re- what really are the prescriptions for reigning in Wall Street's worst instincts? These are very difficult things to do beyond maybe some modest regulatory uh, regulations that will come through the new administration. And, and what, what, what is uh, the difference here? Because what, what your experiences from that Cold War period yeah. are actually very relevant today. And, and what, you're, what you're, you, uh, you, you believe that there should be more aid, you, should believe, you believe that people from the outside should be working through social movements. But, but we still uh, run up against the interests of the powerful, both there and here. And here it, it could very be uh, paying homage to the goddess market, you know, basically, who's not doing too well right now as a, as a goddess. But, but, but I guess what I'm curious about, and I think our audience would be interesting, is what is it that makes the difference? You know, you, you, you're, you're arguing there has to be insight beyond the conventional wisdom, and it's by listening to the people there, uh, working with their leaders, but, but we still have to work against the power structures there and the power structures here. Right. You know, I... I'm so, I please, please. You know, <laughs> I, I, I think one of, the, um, one of the paths out of this is, in fact, to recognize that cultural and spiritual movements that we find almost everywhere in the developing world have, I think, some of the answers for us. So, in contrast to Latin America, where the work of Paolo Freire and others became kind of a confrontational model, as we could see. In many places in Asia, coming out of their own culture, particularly Buddhism Buddhism in Sri Lanka, where I worked extensively, and in other places, they see it as, as a function of enlightenment. They, they, they talk like the Savrodia movement of Sri Lanka, headed by Dr. Ariratna. They, they, they talk about the importance of personal awakening, kind of like a lotus blossom unfolding. The personal awakening to one's own responsibility to oneself, family, to village, to country, and indeed to the globe, and indeed to all species of life on Earth. So it's a beautiful vision of, of release of liberation in a sense, but one that begins from deep within oneself. Now that applies, they feel, just as strongly, just as much to the large landowner who became part of Gandhian movements in India and gave up their lands as it does to just a very poor person. And I think that's one of the visions also of Freire that the poor need to develop their own leadership. But we who have influence over the rich and over the powerful we need to work in our own communities to allow that leadership to be nurtured, allow that leadership to develop, and not to block the kind of change 
that's hard because we see it often as threatening to ourselves. If, if, if you were in a world where the insights that you have uh, gathered over the years could be on the desk of President-elect Obama, what, what, what would, I mean, obviously we're dealing with complexities here that no one president could deal with, but, but there must be one or two big ideas that uh, we in the United States have not learned, or at least our presidents have not learned, yes. uh, even when we've had Democrats, even when uh, our Democratic presidents have worshipped uh, globalization. What, what, what would you like to see as a, as a change, a, an idea that gets to President-elect and, and President Obama's desk? Right. Well, I think the first one is not specifically about foreign aid, but about globalization. That globalization, as it's seen by peoples, particularly in poor countries, particularly the poorer segments of society, see it as a homogenization, as almost a cultural imperialism. They have witnessed over the years kind of the eroding of their own cultures and the Americanization of their, of their cultures. Now, that's, some of that is very good. I mean, human rights have spread around the world. Gender rights have spread around the world, not just from America, but even from within their own cultures. And if that's part of globalization, then I'm all for that, absolutely. A spirit of justice and being cosmopolitans in the world is also part of globalization. But I think one of the lessons that, I, that, that we have learned and that I would hope Mr. Obama and others would, uh, would think about, and I, I think actually he does, is that the kind of globalized society that we should be striving for cannot just look like America. America should look like America. <laughs> but even in the most radical fundamentalist movements, religious movements that we feel very threatened by and should because they are intolerant and they are violent. I have seen a cry to build a society that is true to its own ancient values. I'm not frightened of a Islamic organization that wants to build a Sharia society. You can interpret that very narrowly and intolerant and against other Muslim sects, or you can interpret it, as many Muslims do, as a very tolerant system of justice that is not inconsistent with the kind of Christian values and Jewish values and, and the best of Hinduism and, 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 and other major religions, Judaism, um, that, that, that we have seen. We can't go to a globalization that is only seen as commercialization, as, as, as capitalism running, run amok in societies that don't have the regulatory environment that we do. We need to genuinely go, I think, to a globalization where we see the rise of culture that's going to influence us just as profoundly as, as we will influence them. Well, one final question. If, if students were to watch uh, this program, what should they do about preparing for their future, do you think? Travel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I would love to see the abolishment of high school. 
<laughs> I think the most profound experience that any young person, whether American or Bolivian or Bangladeshi, can experience, in fact, is to get out of their own familiar setting and experience something of the life of the world. And that doesn't mean that they have to go to very poor communities in Bangladesh if they're American. Um, go to France, go to Australia, but also go to developing nations. I have seen in my own life and, and life of my children and, and, and many of uh, my own students how profoundly changed they are. They really come back world citizens, recognizing that what we have cherished here in the United States is, is, is a wonderful society that is prospered and is built on fundamental freedoms that we, that we do cherish. But there are other societies that also have freedoms that are, that are deeply entrenched in their own cultures that we need to respect. They may articulate them differently, but that one-to-one -one relationships that they build when people travel, I think, is, is, is a profound, uh, inf should be a profound influence on our, on our youth. Uh, Larry, on that note, I, I want to thank you for uh, uh, coming to Berkeley and, and sharing uh, your experiences uh, uh, in, in the world of, of development and uh, humanitarianism. Thank you very much. Thank you, Harry. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.